If you have a Bible with you, please keep it open to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 21, the passage that just read for us. There's also a sermon handout in your bulletin that uh, you may want to take out that will give you a steer as to where the sermon is heading this afternoon. And if you are joining us uh, via Zoom, uh, the handout will be on the screen. Over these past two weeks, we've been preaching through a sermon series on the theme of exiles. This series is an offshoot from our Hebrew series, where we were reminded in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, that Christians are exiles on this earth. The verse there reads, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Exile, as the dictionaries would usually define it, is a state of voluntary or forced absence from one's country or home. Accompanying that is often the experience of pain and suffering that results from the knowledge that there is a home where one belongs and yet, for the present, one is unable to return there. But exile can often imply more than just simply a geographical dislocation. As one author puts it, it can include the experience of knowing one is an alien in a hostile environment where the dominant values run counter to one's own. And we experience this in Canada, where increasingly, the dominant value runs counter to the Christian faith. In this series, we are learning from three passages in the Bible about people who were, for all intents and purposes, exiles where they were living. The question we want to address is this. As exiles in the land we are in, how should we then live? My hope is that these three passages can give us some handle on how we should live as exiles in our current environment. Our passage in Daniel 3, two weeks ago, explained why it is necessary sometimes to defy the system as Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. And for brevity, we had called that Sadrach's choice. And last week, I suggested that we could also live as exiles by working the system, and I called that Esther's choice. Both the stories were about situations where the characters were faced with serious challenges to the faith. Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had to decide if they were willing to worship the golden image set up by King Nebuchadnezzar. Esther had to prevent the annihilation of the Jewish people because of a royal decree by King Xerxes I. But what about the rest of the Christians who may not have had to face such critical challenges to their faith and who are not suffering under some state-sponsored persecution. What does exile living look like for these Christians? For the rest of us, in our context, what does it look like? Because what we are probably experiencing today here in Canada is not some statewide persecution, but it is an increasing hostility towards Christians a progressively intolerant culture in which we are likely to be discriminated against simply because we identify with Christ. 
Or maybe it's got nothing to do with our faith. We have simply been unfairly treated at work or at school. After all, if we are exiles living in a hostile environment where the dominant values run counter to our faith, we can expect some pushback from those who do not share our beliefs or our values. It could be as simple as your boss asking you to falsify some documents at work, but you choose not to do so because you are Christian. And as a result, you are being passed on for promotion. Or your classmates cheating in their exams in this Zoom environment, but you choose not to join in. And consequently, you scored a lower mark than average. And your friends mock you for being silly, for not joining them. In a sense, we shouldn't be surprised, should we? Because Jesus already warned us in John chapter 15, verse 19. He said, If you were off the world, the world will love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Our passage this afternoon from 1 Peter will address some of these issues. It is written by the Apostle Peter, and we are told in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse, that this letter was written to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion, to Pontus, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Well, it is likely to have been written uh, by Peter sometime early AD 60. While there's no evidence of empire-wide persecution of Christians at this point, some level of local persecution existed. And Christians then were certainly living in a land where the dominant values would be very different from theirs. In such a context, it must have been an encouragement to be reminded by Peter again of their identity. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And that's a plural you, by the way, which means that Peter was referring to the church. This phrase comes from a book in the Old Testament, Exodus, Exodus chapter 19, verse 5 and 6, referring to Israel's experience at Mount Sinai, where God made a covenant with them. God told Moses in verse 5, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In quoting these verses, Peter was telling his audience that God is creating a new community of people called the church. And the church is the new Israel that is not from ethnic Israel, but from those who believe in Jesus. And this new Israel will form the royal priesthood. As you know, priests are mediators. They speak to God on behalf of people and to people on behalf of God. They are therefore meant to come before the Lord and then to go out from His presence and bless those who are outside God's presence through their lives and through their lips. And being royal means that they represent the king. And this is what the church is meant to do. The church represents God and is the means by which God makes His presence felt among the people. Given this role, they are a holy nation, just as the God they serve is holy Himself. 
And to be holy means to be set apart. The church is set apart to serve God and others. And because the church has been bought with purchased with the blood of Christ, they are now God's possession. And so that is the status and identity of the church. Peter wanted his audience to remember that, to know that. And then in verse 10, he reminds them that once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Again, that verse comes straight from another Old Testament book, this time from the book of Hosea, chapter 2, verse 23, where Israel's unfaithfulness to God is revealed. And despite that, God promised to make a new people and says to them, you are my people. What a tremendous encouragement that must have been for those listening to Peter's letter being read to remind them of their identity, to know that even as they do not belong in the environment they're in, they belong to God. And so that's our first lesson for this afternoon, lesson one. Christians need to know our identity as God's people in new Israel, which is the church. Let me repeat that. Christians need to know our identity as God's people in new Israel, which is the church. But what next? Now that we know our identity, what happens next? Well, the story is told of Queen Victoria growing up. Uh, she happens to be the great-great-grandmother of the current Queen Elizabeth. And as a child, she was quite a difficult child, very disobedient, disrespectful to her governess. And one day, totally exasperated, the governess reprimanded her, saying, you are royal, act royal. You are royal, act royal. And that's what's next for us. Because knowing our identity means that knowing God wants us to form a covenant people who belongs to him. And this is the church. And the church is God's plan to rescue the world. And as priests, the church is called to go out and mediate God to those who do not yet know him. And the church is called to be holy. But what does that all look like? Peter tells us uh, in verse uh, 11 and 12, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Here, Peter reminds the church that belonging to God means they do not belong to the world. And as far as they're concerned, they are sojourners and exiles in this world. Well, I've read Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13 earlier, but look at the following three verses. And let me start from verse 13 again. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. That's Hebrews chapter 11, verses 11, chapter 11, verses 13 to 16. 
strangers and exiles. This means that the world is not their home because they don't belong there. They were looking forward to a city, a home, a heavenly one that God had prepared for them. And these people were cultural outsiders and their behaviours would be expected to be unusual and foreign. And I can relate to that to some extent. As you know, I did my studies in Japan and during my undergraduate days. And I remember when I first arrived at the airport in Tokyo, and this is in the 1980s, I was directed to an immigration booth. And above the booth was a huge sign, aliens. And then some distance away, um, there was another booth there, and above was a sign, Japanese. Aliens. Sure makes you feel at home. Anyway, after a few months uh, of settling in and making some Japanese friends, they just couldn't understand why I wasn't particularly keen to join them in their public baths. Well, for me, it was quite a simple uh, choice. The water was always way too hot. Anyway, Peter tells the church in exile to expect that their behavior would seem foreign to others. And they needed to do two things. Abstain and keep. Negatively, to abstain or to stop doing certain things. Positively, to keep on or continue doing certain things. Well, firstly, what are Christians to abstain from? Peter tells them to abstain from the passions of the flesh. These passions of the flesh are sinful desires, our disordered natural inclinations, as someone puts it. It's not just merely in a narrow sense of sexual sins. Because helpfully for us, Peter spells them out for us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. And there we read, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who caught you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And then a few verses later in chapter 2, verse 1, um, he elaborates what his passions were, namely malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. These are the things that the church was to abstain from. And in addition, Peter included in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, another list of passions, such as living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Those were the passions that Peter tells the church to abstain from. As Peter puts it, these are what the Gentiles, i.e. the unbelievers, these are what the Gentiles want to do. But Christians, in their new identity, as God's people, needed to abstain from them. Well, secondly, Peter tells the church that they are to keep their conduct among the Gentiles honourable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, he said, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on a day of visitation. What is honourable conduct? Well, you can see in that verse that that is linked to good deeds. Peter is repeating what Jesus said. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. For Peter, 
Doing good deeds is what honourable conduct is for Christians. And what good deeds might Peter have in mind? Well, he spells it out for us in the following nine verses. Specifically, he, he explained what good deeds look like in two contexts, that which is in the relationship between Christians and the state, and that between Christians and their masters. Well, he, do, he does talk about the relationship within the household as well, but we're not looking at that this week. And it is how Christians are to behave in these two relationships that we see how we subvert the system. The word subvert is usually defined as undermining the power and authority of an established system or institution. It has a negative connotation, doesn't it? It often sounds like someone planning a coup to overthrow the government. Well, as you would expect, that's not at all the intent here. For us here, in this context, subverting the system refers to undermining the power and authority of an established system or institution by living and behaving in such a positive way that we make the exercise of that power and authority unnecessary. Let me repeat that. Subverting the system in this context refers to undermining the power and authority of an established system or institution by living and behaving in such a positive way that we make the exercise of the power and authority unnecessary. We call this Peter's choice. And Peter learned this at the feet of Jesus. In Matthew 5, at the start of the uh, Sermon of the Mount, Jesus tells his disciple that if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. You see, what sort of assault or abuse or murder charges can you pin on someone who thinks of himself as having murdered another person even when he was just being angry with that person? Because that's how seriously he takes anger. To him, anger was murder enough. What sexual crimes can you charge a person for who conducts his life in such a way that for him, looking at a woman with lustful intent is wrong and in fact, equivalent to committing adultery with her. You see, no human institution has the power or authority over people like that. Their standards are significantly higher than what is demanded by the law or by their governing authorities. And that is exactly what Jesus encourages Christians to do in his Sermon on the Mount. And it is what Peter encourages his readers to do in his letter. We see that in the following two instances. Firstly, in the relationship between Christians and human institutions, such as the state. Peter wants his readers to be subject for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. Other translations use the word submit. Both work just as well. What Peter is saying here is that whatever government we have, 
good or bad, Christians have a responsibility to submit to earthly authorities. Yes, we may be citizens of a heavenly kingdom serving our God, but during the time of our exile here on earth, we must submit ourselves to every governing authority placed over us by God. Why? Because as Peter tells us in verse 15, this is the will of God. Our God is a God of order, and these political structures are what helps maintain order in the world for the common good of society. As someone puts it, almost any government is better than no government. In Peter's time, it would not be uncommon to find people on either side of the political spectrum. Either they were on the part of emperor cult worship, nothing that the emperor does uh, can be wrong, or they were zealots out to assassinate people in authority. And what Peter is calling for here is a middle path, submission to the governing authorities, giving respect and honour where they're due, but not ruler worship, and certainly no civil insurrections. Is this what we see in our politics today in North America? Are Christians known for their submission to the governing authorities? Or are we worshipping a particular leader or party as the answer to our society's problems? Or perhaps we speak of a mere human as an evil power that rivals God, as though the wrong election results might well bring hell on earth. Imagine what politics would be like if Christians did what Peter said. I think politics would look very different here. And that's why what Peter is advocating is so counter-cultural and subversive. He's holding Christians to standards that are significantly higher than what is typically expected of citizens here. But what does it mean to submit to our governing authorities anyway? Well, it is to acknowledge the God-given authority of the state and to act in line with the structures of such a relationship. You may ask, but doesn't Peter's call to submit feel so absolute, so restrictive? Yes, only if we see submission as a principle to uphold, or a law to abide by, or perhaps a cultural norm to obey, but not for the Christian. For us, submission is an example to follow. The example of a person who modelled for us what it means to submit. Look down at verse 21. Let me read for you. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. That is our example. That is our model. We willingly submit ourselves to people in authority because we desire to follow Jesus and we want our lives to please him. And Peter doesn't give us any exception to that, except for cases such as what Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had to go through, where obeying the state means disobeying God. Also, we don't only obey governing authorities that we think are good, and it doesn't matter whether we voted for them or not. We are to submit to them. But look, it can't be easy for Peter to write these words, because Peter suffered at the hands of governing authorities. 
In Acts chapter 12, for instance, he was put in prison simply because King Herod liked it that the fact that the ill treatment of uh, Christians pleased the Jews. While the emperor in Peter's day was Emperor Nero. And Nero was famous for persecution against Christians. Historians tell us that Peter was martyred under Nero. As for governors, people like Pontius Pilate and Felix, well, Pilate handed Jesus to be crucified. We just read it a moment ago in our creed. Felix kept Paul in jail for two years, hoping for a bribe. And all these three men, Nero, Pilate, Felix, they're all Peter's contemporaries. And yet Peter tells us to submit to such rulers. Why? Because as verse 15 tells us, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Our submission to authority is the strongest apologetics against the view that Christians are anti-institution and anti-government. After all, Christians claim allegiance to one God and they won't worship the emperor. And so a Christian's loyalty to authorities is always suspect. We change that perception by submitting to authorities. Christians should be the best citizens of earthly governments and we submit freely, not under compulsion. And we certainly don't use our freedom as a cover-up for evil. Our heavenly citizenship doesn't exempt us from the laws of earthly governments. Instead, we need to pay taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue are owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honour to whom honour is owed. We see that in Romans chapter 13. And as obedient law-abiding citizens, we seek the welfare of the cities in which we live, doing good for society. Peter then goes on to say, honour everyone. Verse 17. Death is a culture where honour is one way, from the younger to the older, from the citizens to the governors. Honour flows from the lesser to the greater. But Peter asks that Christians honour everyone, both those above us in the hierarchy as well as those below. And this is subversive. The expectations and the norms of culture are being undermined, even as Christians in positions of power honour those below them. And so, in the relationship between Christians and the state, this passage encourages Christians to submit to and respect ruling authorities, to do good in relation to the state while keeping the state in proper perspective to God. Secondly, Peter addresses the relationship between the servants and their masters. It is important to understand what the word servant here means. And some translations have it as slaves. But the word, it's probably household servant. That's probably closer to the mark. As one commentator explains, in the ancient Roman world, there are three classes of people. The Roman citizen who had full rights and protection under law. The freedman who had restricted protections but still enjoyed a great deal of autonomy and the servant class. The servant class were the men and women largely employed 
as managers and helpers in a home. They ran the agrarian workplace. And this servant class is the one that Peter is writing about at this point in the letter. Indeed, some of these servants were tutors or even physicians in their master's household. In fact, Felix, the governor, we spoke about that earlier, he was from the servant class, promoted by Claudius Caesar to be a governor. So it is quite a different picture from the slaves that we might have in mind in 19th century America. But this is not to say that ill treatment of these servants did not happen, because in fact, we know it did. We have historical records of these servants or slaves who ran away or even poisoned uh, their cruel masters. And seen in this light, the servants that Peter are referring to here are quite similar to our present-day employees. And so what Peter is saying to the servants back then has relevance for us today in our relationship with our employers. We see in verse 18, Peter tells the servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. Yes, even to those who mistreat them, uh, mistreat their staff, uh, treat them unfairly, Christian servants are to serve them and to submit to them. There's no promise at all that Christians will be treated fairly. And so how should Christians respond? Peter tells them it is a gracious thing if they endure unjust suffering. And what does he mean by that? The Greek word for gracious thing is charis, which literally means grace. And what Peter is saying is that our conduct when we submit to unjust masters, those who treat us unfairly, displays the grace of God that the world needs to see. How does this happen? You see, enduring unjust treatment from your masters or your employers is hard to swallow, isn't it? But if you are able to do that, what you demonstrate to your fellow colleagues is that you have a God who is able to give you resources not available to anyone else. And that resource is grace. And that grace is what's going to make the difference. That's how the gospel is going to change the world. Because when people see Christians living such distinctly different lives, even extreme circumstances, when the natural response would be to retaliate, to take revenge, they're going to sit up and take notice. When you see Christians who are prepared to suffer for doing good, the reality of what makes Christianity different, what Christ is able to do in our lives, begins to impact the community and the workplace. And that can only happen when in verse 19, Peter says, we are mindful of God mindful of God. When our consciousness of God is greater than our awareness of our injustice or of our personal pain, the Christian is able to endure only because she's mindful of God. She knows that God is with her. She knows that God will sustain her and she knows that God will reward her. So the more the Christian knows she's in the right, the more she is to submit patiently and to live it 
with God. And that's, in a sense, the logic of verse 20. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Because that's exactly what you deserve. Nothing remarkable about that. But if you, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. There it is again, the carries word. Now, that's exceptional because that's not what the world expects. And this is the life that we as exiles must live if we are to make a difference. It is the life that shows up the world for what it lacks. But we are only able to live like that if we are more conscious of God, more mindful of God than our own rights, more keen to please Him than to be comfortable, and more concerned to trust His plans than complain about our circumstances. And to help us do that, verse 21 tells us, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. You see, we are not left to figure it out for ourselves. Christ has modeled for us the way, and he has given us the example. What is the this that Peter has in view here? That he said we have been called to. Well, I believe it is suffering. To be more precise, righteous suffering. This is suffering we receive even when we don't deserve it. But until we understand righteous suffering, we cannot begin to understand grace. And our problem today is that too many of us Christians have bought into the idea that if we just lived righteous lives, we go to church, we read our Bibles, we pray, we give generously. As long as we do all that, we will not suffer. You see, for a lot of us, righteousness and suffering are somewhat incompatible in our minds. If I strive to be as righteous as I possibly can, I wouldn't suffer. In fact, I shouldn't suffer. Many of us don't even have a theological category for righteous suffering, and certainly no idea for how to endure it. But that is not what the Christian faith is about. In fact, it is likely that the more righteous we are, the more likely we are to suffer. And it is only when we embrace a theology of righteous suffering that is rooted in the gospel will we be able to prepare ourselves for such eventualities and endure suffering when it comes. And Peter said, this is what we are being called to. And for evidence of this, we just have to look to Christ. Verses 22 to 24 of 1 Peter chapter 2, we didn't read that earlier on, but let me read it for you. Verse 22, He, as in Jesus, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Christ modeled for us what righteous suffering looks like, what it means to endure while suffering unjustly. And Peter tells us, now, go and do likewise. There's a second lesson this afternoon. Lesson two, Christians subvert 
the system through their honourable conduct of submission to governing authorities and to their masters. Let me repeat that. Christians subvert the system through their honourable conduct of submission to governing authorities and to their masters. Finally, remembering the mission. Well, it should be obvious to us by now, but a question we have in mind would be, why would God choose the path of submission to the authority and submission to our masters for the church? Well, the answer is this. It is so that unbelievers may believe and glorify God when Christ returns again. And we see that at the end of uh, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. When we submit to our governing authority, when we submit to our masters, when we endure unjust suffering, many unbelievers will see our good deeds and come to faith and glorify God. The salvation of unbelievers is at stake here. And that's our mission. Or as some would put it, that's our great commission. We want to make disciples of more and more people so that they can join us in glorifying God. Perhaps that's why Peter addressed his readers in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, right at the start, as those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. The word dispersion comes from the Greek word diaspora, from which we get the same English word, diaspora. It means scattered. Perhaps Peter likens the Christian he was writing to as a scattering, as of seed sown. Christians who have been dispersed, who have been scattered, sown abroad for the mission of sowing the seed of the gospel. Let us remember our mission. That is our third lesson uh, this afternoon. Christians subvert the system to bring others to faith in Christ for the glory of God. Lesson number three, let me repeat that. Christians subvert the system to bring others to faith in Christ for the glory of God. Let me conclude. I've been reading through Paul's letter to the Philippians with a few other guys in our church this past few months. And just a few weeks ago, we were reading the passage from Philippians chapter 2, verse 25 to 30, where Paul uh, mentions Epaphroditus, who had been sent by the Philippian church to care for Paul when they heard that he was in prison in Rome. Well, I did some digging and found a story from a Christian author that was really helpful in giving us an idea of what subverting the system looked like for the early church. From what we know, Epaphroditus was to stay in Rome to be Paul's personal attendant. He was clearly a brave man. Brave because anyone who offered himself as a personal attendant of a man awaiting trial on a capital charge risked becoming involved in the same charge. Epaphroditus was risking his life to serve Paul. Then while he was in Rome, he fell ill and was near to death. And Epaphroditus knew that the news of his illness had filtered back to Philippi. And he was worried because he knew that his friends there would be worried about him. But God in his mercy spared the life 
of Epaphroditus. But Paul knew that it was time for Epaphroditus to go home. And in all probability, he was the bearer of Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. Now, there is a particular word in Philippians chapter 2, verse 30, where Paul wrote regarding Epaphroditus. Paul said of him, verse 30, quote, He nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. The word risking is the Greek verb parabolustai, which is a gambler's word. It means to stake everything on the turn of a dice. Paul is saying that for the sake of Jesus Christ, Epaphroditus gambled his life. Now, in the days of the early church, there was an association of men and women called parabolali, or the gamblers. It was their aim to visit the prisoners and the sick, especially those who were ill with dangerous and infectious diseases. So when a plague broke out in Carthage, for instance, in AD 252, people were throwing out the bodies of the dead and they fled in terror. But Cyprian, the Christian bishop, gathered his congregation together and he would preach sermons to challenge Christians to remember their identity in Christ, to care for others, both Christians and non-Christians, and to risk their lives for them. The Christians would bury the dead, nurse the sick in that uh, plague-stricken city, and by so doing, they saved the city from destruction and desolation at the risk of their own lives. Or as someone puts it, there was in the Christian an almost reckless courage that makes him ready to gamble with his life to serve Christ and men. And later on, the Roman Emperor Julian, known by Christians as Julian the Apostate, who was, he was strongly anti-Christian, he wrote to a pagan priest and complained, and I quote, the impious Galileans, that's his term for Christians, the impious Galileans, in addition to their own, support ours, end quote. Verse 12 of our passage today reminds us, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And this is how exiles, subverting the system, are to live in the land we are in. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.